So we're continuing or wrapping up our series this morning, uh, Conversations, just one chapter past where we were last week. Um, and if you haven't been with us, we've just been going through, <clears throat> man, just experiences that people had in which they talked to Jesus, had an actual conversation, exchanged some words, some ideas. Last week, we looked at John chapter 3 that kind of concluded with John three sixteen and 17 to give us some context about what that means, um, how we understand the gospel, how we convey the gospel, how Nicodemus would have understood it, what it would have meant to him. And uh, today, we're going to be in the very next chapter in John chapter 4. Um, a large chapter, I mean a large section, and, and this is, I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, we're going to read through a big, big chunk, but the first part, we're just going to kind of look at it as narrative, and then we'll, we'll kind of tackle the words and what's being said. Um, but to be honest, I really want to focus on the end. I want to focus on the outcome. There's some things that we need to hear, some things we need to know, but I really want to get to the things that we need to do in light of this passage. And so I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to jump right in. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for guiding us today. We thank you for bringing us together. Um, we thank you, God, that you are a father who is worthy of our worship. Uh, you're worthy of our lives. Father, you're worthy of anything that we can give you and all that we can give you. Um, today, God, I pray that your word would speak to us. It would speak to our condition, and it would speak to the mission, God, and how we go after that. Uh, thank you for your word today. Thank you that it's trustworthy like you. And God, I pray that it makes us look more and more like the church you desire us to be and uh, more and more like people that look like Jesus. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So John chapter 4, we'll start in verse 1. Um, there's some cultural things that we'll need to understand about this particular passage. Uh, it's talking about Jesus walking through a place called Samaria. Uh, we see Samaria come up in First and Second Kings. In Second Kings, around the about chapter 17, we see uh, that Israel and Judah, the people of Israel, they have been mixed with other people, religions and and actually races and things like that. And, and the problem was they came back and they didn't just bring. Uh, new DNA, but they brought new worship practices and different gods, and they began to intermingle uh, the ways of Judaism or worshiping the one true God and then worshiping other gods. We had seen Israel do it bit by bit, but this actually became a people in the middle of the nation of Israel in a place called Samaria in which it was their practice. And as a result of not just the, the racial intermingling, but most, most importantly, the the worshiping intermingling, they became considered half-breeds to the rest of the people of Israel. They were looked at like dogs, um, and there was a lot of tension between the people of Israel, the people of Samaria. Um, and so we're going to see some geographical things today in which Jesus is going to pass through a place called Samaria. Um, sometimes when they would make, or make this travel from one place to the next, they would avoid it. They would go around. They would go to the Jordan River Valley, add some, a lot of miles to their journey to skip through this. But other times they would go straight through like we're going to see them do here. Uh, but we knew that it created, or they knew that it would create some possible dangerous situations for them. So let's start in verse 1. We'll read through a couple verses and give you a little more information. It said, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus uh, was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So this was about noon. So they probably lit out early in the morning. They covered a ton of ground. Uh, let's say they left at 6 a.m. They got there by noon. They covered a lot of ground on foot. They were not on camels. They were not on donkeys. They were just walking. And uh, so Jesus gets there, and he's tired. Middle of the day, hottest part of the day, driest part of the day, all of that. 
and they've come to this place of Jacob's well in this town of Sychar. And in verse 7, it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, uh, or please give me a drink. It's implied here in the Greek. It doesn't actually translate very well into English. It sounds rude, but actually in the Greek, it would be like a please, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And so right here, we're, we're starting to see that there is a, a bit of a cultural clash on, on a couple levels. Uh, number one, the fact that Jesus, being a Jewish male, was talking to a woman was a big deal. Like, that did not happen. In that culture, like, to be honest, the way that the culture had gotten, women were not revered, uh, women were not thought very highly of, they were, they were second-class citizens. And right or wrong, wrong, it was just, it was how things had gotten. And so right off the bat, we see that it's odd that Jesus is actually talking to a woman, at least by cultural standards. But secondly, not just that she's a woman, but he's a Jewish male. She is a Samaritan female. Him actually speaking to someone who is Samaritan, much less a woman, was just, it was different. It was not normal. It was out of the ordinary. So when he looked at her and he said, please give me a drink, she was shocked. She was taken aback. Um, because this would be the situation. There would be a well, and there were probably wells within the city, but this well was outside of the city. And most of the time, the common practice is you would get water at one of two times. You would either get it early in the morning when it was cool to prepare you for the rest of the day to do all the things that you needed to do. You didn't have a tap in your house. You didn't have a spigot or a hose pipe, as we call them in South Carolina. It, anyway, I, I love the redundancy of hose pipe. But that you didn't have that, so you'd go and draw water in the morning, or you would draw it at night when it was cool, and you would have it for the next day. But here's another oddity of this passage. This woman is here at noon. She's here at the middle of the day. And she wasn't going to a well in the city. She was going outside of the city. So what we can see now is that not only are there some, there's some cultural clashes here, but we're starting to catch a glimpse that this woman might be not the normal. She might be a little bit different. There could be some things about her that are not just quite right. And so uh, he just says to her, give me a drink. May I have some water? And so she kind of freaks out. She's like, how is it that you, Jewish male, talking to me, female Samaritan? Um, and then this is what he says to her in verse 10. And Jesus answered her and said, if you knew the gift of God who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here's the other situation that we probably don't understand about drawing water from a well. Um, most of the time we picture a well that it has a nice roof over it and it has the crank with a rope and a bucket and it's just always there and you always go and you just, you just get that water. But here's the deal, they wouldn't do that because they wouldn't want just anyone drinking out of their well. And so there may be a cover over the well, there may even be a roof if it was fancy, but most of the time it was a hole in the ground that collected water and you'd bring your own bucket and your own rope. That way, just not anybody could come and take the water. And so this woman would have brought the rope, she would have brought the bucket, and she would have been ready to lower it down and get the water, take it back to her house. Um, and so Jesus makes an offer. He said, hey, uh, I know that I asked you for a drink, and you're kind of perplexed at the fact that I'm a man, I'm speaking to you, I'm a Jewish man, I'm speaking to you, a Samaritan woman, but if you knew who I really was, you would want the water that I could give you. And so for her, it's not going to be quite as clear for her as it would be for us because we've, we've read most of these stories. We've heard most of these stories. And so for us, it doesn't sound that odd. We'd be like, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. But for her, she would have been like, what are you, what are you talking about? Who are you? Number one, you, you shouldn't be talking to me at all. But number two, you don't have a bucket and you don't have a rope. What, what are you talking about? And so she continues in verse 11. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? And so she does. She notices. She's like, I, I, don't, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm the only one here with a bucket and a rope. You, you have nothing to give me. And then we get another glimpse into the Samaritan culture at the time because now she's asking him, she was like, okay, I see that you're a little off. I see that you're a little different. I, I, I see all of that. Um, then she throws out, are you greater than our father Jacob? This is another symptom of being a Samaritan because the Samaritans, when they were uh, relocated to being like half-breeds, when they became outcasts, they also began to go back and change Jewish history to match their narrative. And so what they had done, because most Jews, what they would say is they would claim Abraham as a father. We even sing about it. Father Abraham had many sons. But they, they would have sang, they would have sang Father Jacob. It doesn't have the same ring to it. Because they wanted to differentiate themselves from the people of Israel. If they, they were saying, look, if we're going to be half-breeds, we're going to have our deal. Okay? Not yours, ours. And so, and even they even changed the place of their worship, which we'll get to in a minute. But he just said, look, are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? And so already we're seeing just some, some big differences here. I think the first thing that we need to see, because obviously the same way that we've seen in all of the conversations that Jesus has had in the, in the past few weeks that we've been talking about, Jesus is going to give away this idea of what it takes to have eternal life, because that was the question that kept being asked, even if it wasn't being uttered. So we know that Jesus is going to get to that. Um, and what we need to understand, even before he does, is we need to, we need to get this, and this is big. Culture does not determine who the gospel is for. And I know that sounds strange, but maybe now more than ever, like in the divided times that we live in, be it political, be it about the virus, be it about race, whatever it may be, culture does not determine who the gospel is for. It does not. And so what that means is that I do not determine who the gospel is for. You do not determine who the gospel is for. The we of us does not determine. We do not determine who the gospel is for. Jesus and only Jesus determines who the gospel is for. And the way that he claims that the gospel is, like we read last week, for God so loved the world, the whole entire inclusion of all people in it, the gospel, the hope of salvation is for all people. We don't determine that. Because by cultural standards, this woman would have been off-limits. She would not have been a woman. According to the Jews and the rabbis, the, the religious uh, intellectuals at the time, she would have not been worthy to hear from a rabbi. She would have not been worthy to hear from a teacher. So culture does not determine who the gospel is for. And so she asked, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but everyone who drinks or whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water or a bubbling spring welling up to eternal life. And so she's still not catching on. She's still not quite there. She's like, yeah, uh, you don't have a bucket. You don't have a water. Why are you, why are you talking to me? And then he, he's trying to bring her to kind of the point that he's trying to make. He's like, look, this water that you're offering, this water that you have, you have to drink of it every day. And if you don't drink of it, man, you thirst to death. He's like, what I am offering you is not like that. What I am offering you is totally different. What I'm offering you is eternal. And not only is it you drink it once and you're good, but you drink it and it just, man, it multiplies and it grows. And it's like a bubbling well that never runs dry. It's always there for eternity. And so now this woman, she's got to just be like, dude, 
you must be really hot right now. The, the sun must have gotten to you. Your brain, not working. Something's wrong. And so her response, this woman said to him, well, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's still not catching it. She was like, yeah, that sounds really good. Yeah, I would like that eternal water that I drink and I'm never thirsty again. Yeah, give me a cup of that. That'd be great. You know, it'd be like, no, I'm not going to make the buffet comparison. But either way, because uh, buffets are bad. We've all learned our lesson at least once, so I'll, I won't chase that rabbit. So she's still not catching it. He's trying to say, look, I, I have something that's better. I have something that's different. I have something that's just good. She's not catching it. So here's what Jesus does in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Seems innocuous enough. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem crazy. But remember what we said a second ago. Like most people wouldn't be at the well at noon. Most people would have drawn their water in the morning or drawn it in the evening or they would have gotten it in town. But this woman, something, something wasn't quite the same. So he said to her, he said, go and call your husband. And the woman answered him. She said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that I have no husband, for you've had five, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And Jesus is so masterful about like, and we've seen it in almost every one of these conversations, when someone's not just, they're not quite getting it, he's always just going to kind of flip things a little bit so that they see. You know, like the, the lawyer who was asking, well, who is my neighbor? You know, Jesus told the story and basically told him, you know, you're asking the wrong question. You know, when, when each of these guys previous, when they asked, well, what, they, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He was like, well, you know, go and be perfect. Because Here's the other thing that we need to see. Um, I think very often, and I think this is incredibly necessary for us to understand the gospel, in order for us to see our need for Jesus, we have to see our sin first. Like we have to see the flaw in the pot first before we can actually go to the potter and want a new one. And so this is what Jesus does. She's not catching on that what he's offering is eternal. He's not catch, she's not catching on that, that what he is offering is, is better than the, the water that she's ever drank, but this is something just better and eternal and, and life-giving. So he says, go call your husband. And in doing so, he immediately points out the fact that this woman's not like the rest. This woman has a past. She's got a checkered past, and as a matter of fact, she has a checkered present. She said, I don't have a husband. He's like, right, you, you don't have a husband. You've had five. And the guy you're living with now, or shacking up with, he's not even your husband. And so immediately, her mind goes from water to like, mm. yeah, this is why I'm here at noon. She was there at noon because she didn't want to deal with anybody else. She didn't want anyone staring at her. She didn't want anyone jeering at her. She didn't want anyone looking down on her because of her lifestyle, her sin, the things that embarrassed her, made her feel less than. But Jesus saw need to draw her attention to it. Is he being mean? Is he being cruel? No, he's, he's, he's trying to turn things a little bit. And the woman said to her, said to him in verse 19, he said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. I love it. And any time in Scripture when someone that, that doesn't quite believe in Jesus yet says, Oh, well, I think you're a prophet. Well, you, you're close, but you're way off. He said, sir, I, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. And again, the difference here. She said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where you, you people ought to worship. So she's trying to change the subject now. She doesn't like the fact that he just 
pointed out the fact that she's had five husbands. Uh, she's called an adultery at the moment. So she's like, well, let's, let's change the subject because that's a little uncomfortable. I want to leave. She said, you know, we're, we say that we're supposed to worship here on Mount Gerizim is where they were instead of that mountain over there, Mount Ebal. But you're actually saying that we need to be in Jerusalem. So again, it was, we're not going to go into all of it, but they had gone back and they had rewritten part of Israel's history. And they had turned what was the mountain of curses into their mountain of blessings. And so again, she's trying to say, well, you know, it's just we're different. We're different. I don't want to talk about my sin. Let's talk about our differences instead. And so she changes things again, and then Jesus just kind of throws it out there. He said, Jesus said to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. He's telling her that the time is coming, and as a matter of fact, it's here now. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're on Mount Ebal or Mount Gerizim or if you're in the temple in Jerusalem. God wants people to worship them, Him from a sincere heart with a true knowledge of who He is in spirit and in truth. And so again, even though she's wanting to change the subject, Jesus is like, no, no, no. Understand, this is what God wants for people to know Him, to love Him, and to be sincere with their worship. That's all. To know Him, to love Him, to be sincere with their worship. The woman said to him, she said, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then in verse 26, Jesus kind of solidifies everything. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Imagine just like, even though they had changed so much, the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the Messianic prophecies, they were still there, even in their history. So imagine her, just her heart then. She would have just, I mean... Like we talked about what Nicodemus would have felt like last week being confronted with the fact that he can't fix it. His rules, his law, none of that stuff can make him acceptable and holy like this woman right here. Imagine when she figured out, oh man, I'm talking, I'm, I'm talking to Jesus. He just pointed out my sin. He just offered me eternity. He just did all of that. And, and this, is, this is the one I've heard about from like childhood. And I'm just, I'm this filthy, filthy woman that's called an adultery. Here's what she does. Just verse 27, it says, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. There's the culture. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into the town, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town, and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, verse 31, we're going to read through this quickly. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And here's the thing that we need to understand, too. 
the last thing before we talk about what we need to do. Man, we need to understand that Jesus can and will use anyone. I think that we perpetuated this idea that the only time that we are capable of actually uttering the words of Jesus, uttering the gospel of Jesus, is once we have reached this this mysterious level of maturity. But understand, this woman, she had just heard about Jesus. She had just been confronted that he had water that would never run dry, that was about our soul and not about the thirst that we have in our mouth or our belly. She had just been confronted with uh, this guy was actually the Messiah. He was the one pointing out all of her sin. And unless she had heard about her sin, she couldn't see that he was the Christ and all of those things, this woman had just heard about this, and the very first action, the very first thing that she does is she goes and she tells. She was nowhere near mature enough. She, was, she had not been discipled yet. She had not been invested in. She hadn't gone to a conference. She hadn't learned an acronym. She hadn't learned any of those things. This is what she had learned. In spirit and in truth, this was Jesus. She had met him, and she must tell. That's it. She immediately went home and she said, come and see this man. I think he's the Christ. He told me everything I've ever done. Come and see. And as a result of this woman just meeting Jesus, having a conversation with Jesus, people that were looked at as dogs, they believed. They believed. Culture doesn't determine who the gospel is for. Uh, It takes seeing our sin so that we can actually see Jesus. And then we have to understand that Jesus can and will use anyone, even you, even me. And it doesn't take years. It doesn't take decades. I believe that if we feel that it takes years and it takes decades, man, we've either been lied to or we've bought into a lie or we've just missed the fact that Jesus wants to give people water that never runs out. He wants to give people a well inside of them that's constantly renewing itself, constantly overflowing, and it's not just for that person, but it's for every other person that can hear and understand. Jesus can and will use anyone, even a woman who goes to the well at noon instead of in the morning. Even a person who's been trapped in just the worst sins imaginable, even that person the person that's struggled with addiction their entire life, the person that's been told they're worthless, they're not good enough, the person that's been looked down on by everyone, Jesus will use that person. Jesus can use you. Jesus can use me. But it takes, man, it takes us seeing the gospel for what it is, that it's, it's it. Because here's the other thing hidden in here. Jesus is the only one that has a bucket for this well. He's the only one. Jesus is the only one. I know that's weird, but he's the only one that can draw water from this well to give it to anyone. And man, it comes through the mouths of those who have been united with him by grace through faith. He's it. There's no other way. There's no other way. Again, we've talked about it through this entire series of just this idea of it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. So what do we do with this? I think the first is, is we just need to stop. Like for those of us who have been bound to Jesus by grace through faith, we, we are now known by God and we get to know God. I think we just need to stop and take stock and ask what has God done. Like in our community groups right now, like I loved our group this past week where uh, we just kind of sat down and we exchanged the ideas and, and what it was like for us before Jesus. We're in the process of sharing our story over the long haul. And we just asked that question, 
what was my life like before Jesus, to hear people talk about what they were like, what their life was like, what, was, uh, what were their values characterized by, what were their, their ideas of success, what was their idea of failure, all of those things, to hear what was my life like before Jesus. And man, to, to compare that to now, like we need to take stock and ask, what has God done? What has he What has he created in me? How has he enabled me? How has he allowed me to overcome? What has God done? Take stock. We need to remember. Like this woman, it was fresh on her mind. It needs to be fresh on our mind. And sometimes we just need to ask the question, what has God done? We need to take stock. When was the last time we we stopped and just thought about where God has brought me from and where he has brought me to? Yeah, mountains and valleys all in between. but, But man, if you're like me, God's brought me through a lot through a lot of tough places, through a lot of good places, but he's brought me a long way. We just need to stop and ask, God, what have you done? And then I think the second thing we need to do is is we need to look around. Like this woman, she had to look no further for people that needed to hear about what she had just experienced, what she had just heard, the very thing we're asking ourselves to revisit, to reexamine. She didn't have to look around very far. She just went. to stop and we need to look around and, and we just need to ask the question, who is it around me that just, that just needs to hear? Is it, is it in your own home? Is it your children that need to hear? Is it your spouse that needs to hear? Is it your co-workers that need to hear? Is it your neighbors across the street that need to hear? Is it like we've talked about, the guy at Spinks that you buy your fried chicken from every week? Because I know that you do. Maybe you don't, but whatever it is, your pack of Big Red that was, my, that was my family growing up, Big Red. But anyway, there's much better gums out there now, I think. But either way, who is it that needs to hear? Because again, culture doesn't decide who the gospel is for. We do not decide who the gospel is for. Jesus declares who the gospel is for. And the gospel needs to be heard, experienced, and an opportunity to respond by every man, woman, and child. Period. So who is around me that needs to hear? Who around me needs to hear what I've just seen, what I've just experienced, and, and what God has done? And then after we determine who that is, by the way, God determines that, not you. The third thing is this. We just, we just need to share. We just need to share. We need to be open. And granted, like there are some, some levels of maturity that come into play. We're all called to be missionaries, every single one. The Great Commission does not say those who are mature go and make disciples. No, it says all of you who are following me, all of you who have been redefined by me, all of you whose identity is now wrapped up in the identity of Jesus, you go and make disciples. But there is this idea, like if, if you're a brand new believer, you go and do exactly what this woman did. Like, this woman couldn't explain everything, but she said, hey, come and see, come and listen, come and hear. Maybe for you, if you're a new believer or if you're an infant believer, that's okay, you can grow. But if you're an infant believer, here's an easy one, and it's not a cop-out. Invite people to worship. You just say, hey, come, come on Sunday with me. Or maybe you invite them to your community group first. If you're involved in a community group, we desire for that to be a front door. Um, right now, people are going to hear the gospel on display through people's stories. Invite people in. If you've looked around and you've taken stock not just of what God has done, but you've taken stock of those around you who need to hear the gospel, who need to hear exactly what God is doing in your life, what he can do in their life, man, invite them in. Maybe you don't have all the answers. Maybe you don't have all the right words. Maybe you don't have the acronyms. That's okay. Invite them in. Let them hear. But then as you grow in maturity, 
and you can actually start to verbalize your story, and that's one of the markers that we talk about a maturity. An infant, they can't verbalize everything. They know something has changed, but they can't feed themselves yet. That's okay, but as you begin to grow, you begin to have this ability to actually talk about what was my life like before Jesus? How did he grab my attention? How did I respond, and what's my life been like since? You can actually verbalize these things, and guess what? In the life of a believer, if you can verbalize those four things, you have just shared the gospel. You have just revealed the truth of Jesus in your life, that you were trapped in sin. You were identified by sin. He did something to grab your attention, to point it out. You decided that he was better than your sin. You gave your life to him. You trusted your eternity with him. And since then, it's been good, it's been bad, but it's been his. And your story is the gospel. So we look at what God has done. We see who needs to hear it. We share Wherever you are in your journey, you are capable, you are able, and here's the big part, you are called. Every one of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, been bound to him vertically, been bound to one another horizontally, every one of us are called to be missionaries, every single one, to take the gospel wherever we go. And here's the fourth thing that we do. Man, in every single step, before every step takes place, we pray. Everyone. Before we start to take stock of our life, we ask God, God, show me what you've done. Reveal to me what you have changed in me. Reveal to me where you have brought me from and where you have brought me to. Speak to me. Before we begin to look around and we say, God, who is it around me now that needs to hear of your goodness, that needs to hear your story, that, that, that desires to bring you in? We ask God, God, who is that? And before we begin to share and invite people in, we pray then. After God reveals that person to us, man, we begin to pray for them by name. Put them, write them down. If you write down your prayers, man, write them down. Write them down over and over and over. Pray for them over and over and over that God's just unrelenting wisdom, unrelenting power, unrelenting authority would speak through you to them. And in the process, we remember that maturity is not a prerequisite. It will happen. We don't drift there, but God desires us at every point of the stage, every point of the journey, every point of maturation to be involved, to be useful. You've already been made capable, not by your strength, but by the power of Jesus, you've been made capable. So live in that capability. think it would be easy for us to place value on people and say who deserves and who does not deserve, oh man, the gospel and a chance to hear. That's not our job. It's never been our job. It will never be our job. So I think we need to see like Jesus. We need to look like Jesus. And who we are willing to share this truth with is not only determined by one thing. Do they need it? And the answer is always going to be yes. They do. You did. I did. We do. And they do. God, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful, God, that you speak. God, we're thankful that you direct. And, and God, more importantly than anything, we're thankful that you save. 
God, I thank you that it's just Jesus, that it's not me. It's, not, it's no one in this room, but it's just Jesus. God, I pray that we would rely on him more and more and more. And God, I do pray that when we, when we see all of the places that you brought us from and where you brought us to and the plans that you have for us, I pray that we would rejoice. And God, I pray that at that moment you would begin to place people on our heart and in our mind, in our journals, on our refrigerators of names of people that need to hear your goodness, that need to be invited into our story so that you can infect them, so that you can change them, so that you can redeem them. God, I pray that the spirit that is in us would prompt us to pray for them regularly and diligently, God. And God, I pray that you would hear the prayers of your people and grow your kingdom. Not so that the name of origins could be great, but so that the name of Jesus could be magnified. So that more would come to know you, more would come to love you, more would come to serve you in this city. God, I thank you for the promise that you will give us the words, that you will give us the boldness, and you will never leave us. And God, I thank you for a mission that could not be any more beautiful. Continue to guide, continue to uh, direct us, continue to remind us how much you love us. And it's in your son's name we pray.